Hello and welcome to this interview with author of Girls Substack, Freya India. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you very much for coming in. I have, I suppose, been going through your extensive published work. Yeah. Um, I really enjoy the way that you put things and we've been hitting on some of the same issues mm -hmm. in, in our various corners of the internet. But I also noticed in, in anticipation of chatting with you today that there's very rare instances that a guy and a girl our age actually sit down and talk about these issues because most of the time yeah. you see it on podcasts like whatever and and oh, yeah, these yeah. weird agitprop things that, that actually encourage promiscuity weirdly or, or try and blackpill you into it. It's very antagonistic. So Yeah, and I think it's set up for people to disagree and caricature each other. Mm. I, I don't think, you know, there's no kind of genuine, authentic conversations between young men and women mm. any, anywhere, I don't think. I think a lot of these viral accounts as well, you, I, I don't know if you've seen this trend recently of the community mm. notes going underneath the accounts oh, of, yeah, yeah. yeah, and they say, this is actually a paid promotion to promote this girl's yeah, OnlyFans. So yeah. a, lo a lot of this is astroturfed, I think. Yeah. So not very healthy. Yeah. So I suppose diving into the, the problems besetting men and women, hmm. uh, you know what, I'll read a quote from one of your articles just to set the stage <laughs> for it. So, today a vast interconnected network of industries, from social media to wellness to entertainment, to cosmetics to pharmaceuticals, exploits and profits from girls' pain and unique vulnerabilities. This leaves us with an entire ecosystem feeding off various female pathologies. Through this network, industries not only prey on the normal insecurities of girlhood, but manufacture new fears too. Tragically, their despair and disempowerment is a billion dollar industry that doesn't look like bursting anytime soon. So, broad question, I suppose. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, how are young women suffering and who's behind it? Well, so I think there's a lot of things going on. I think, first of all, it's completely normal for young girls to suffer with emotional problems and insecurities and that kind of like inner angst that you have in your adolescence. So I think all of those normal things are still happening, but various shifts in modern life have meant that they're being magnified and they're taken to this level where we're seeing a mental health crisis. Um, you know, so for example, it's completely normal for a girl to worry about her looks and feel insecure, but she's having to contend with that in a world of TikTok influencers and Snapchat filters. Um, same with, say, relationships. It's completely normal for girls to worry about their relationships, but they're dealing with that in a world of dating apps and online porn and hookup culture. So I think what's happening is all of these things that have changed in modern life, whether it's social media, the decline of religion, um, or globalization, whatever it is, has magnified those normal worries. But like I said, I also think there's companies that are exploiting and profiting from magnifying and exacerbating those vulnerabilities in girls and young women. So yeah, the pharmaceutical industry depends on our distress and our diagnosis. The um, wellness industry depends on our stress and anxiety. The beauty industry depends on us our self-loathing and our insecurity. And so there's this kind of entire commercial ecosystem that now profits off of, you know, ramping up those normal vulnerabilities and making them just unmanageable for mm. young girls. Yeah, I, I, I definitely, one of the main things that, that alerted me to the social media stuff, I mean, everyone talks about the, the pandemic of gender ideology on TikTok, mm -hmm. but one of the alarming things was, I think it was about a year and a half ago, there was a memo that came out from Facebook and Instagram, yeah. and they simultaneously admitted that oh, yeah. they were causing a teenage girl health crisis, and mm -hmm. then at the bottom, it was about targeting strategies to see how they could get a younger age demographic on yeah. the platform. I, th I think the similar thing about Twitter, uh, this is one of my main frustrations with Elon Musk, mm. he, he cleared out child exploitation material from the platform, absolutely important. But then the age of using Twitter is still 13 and you are yeah. allowed pornography on the platform. So that is still putting people in the same environment yeah. where you can monetize viewing figures for extreme content that's going to warp warp their body perceptions. So what are girls seeing on social media that is, is warping their self-perception? Um, well, I think there's, there's so many things. I think the, the big thing that people talk about is to do with appearance. So algorithms that can you know, track your personalised innermost fears and insecurities and then serve more of that back to you. So I think, obviously, previous generations of girls and young women were aggressively advertised commodities and everything, you know, that's not new. But now it's so targeted toward specific girls' vulnerabilities. So, you know, if you're, like, insecure about your nose, for example, an algorithm can serve you rhinoplasty surgeries or editing apps or how to contour your nose with makeup. You know, you'll be served very targeted content. Um, 
And I think that's the, the biggest danger of it is whatever your kind of vulnerability is, if you've got kind of vulnerability to an eating disorder, the algorithm will serve you more of it and it will become more and more extreme. This was the Proana content that was yeah. in Tumblr for ages. Yeah, and you don't even have to interact with it. You can just kind of hover over it slightly longer, two seconds longer, and the algorithm will log it and continue mm. to serve you. So I, I think it's more about, you know, rather than this content is bad for young people, which is obviously a lot of stuff, which is, you know, pornography. But it's also just for a formative mind in the most vulnerable years, you're having content served to you based off of your own personal fears and vulnerabilities, um, which, yeah, it's inevitable we'd end up in a mental health crisis. Yeah, it's, it's a kind of cannibalistic feedback loop inflicted on the most vulnerable people. Yeah. And then you, you, it's kind of no wonder that yeah. the trans issue took over so rapidly when you can see young girls wanting to achieve a kind of escape velocity mm -hmm. from these unattainable, hyper-feminine, hyper-pornified depictions of women mm -hmm. that they just go, okay, I'll, I'll pack it all in and, and pick the, the easier option. Yeah. Um, so so what, what's Instagram face? Explain this down <laughs> for me. So Instagram face is, everyone would know it. It's the kind of like ethnically ambiguous look, the kind of Kardashian face. Um, where each feature is kind of exaggerated to the to the beauty ideal. Mm. So the, the big lips, the chiseled cheeks, um, the kind of thick Instagram makeup. But the interesting thing about Instagram face is it is a face for Instagram. It's a face that looks better online than real life. So often when you meet girls or women in real life who have tried to achieve these things, it's kind of jarring. Like you can kind of just tell that it's not the proportions of their face. It's uncanny valley. Yeah, and sometimes, you know, it's subtle. I'm sure we don't pick up on it, but a lot of the time there is just something in real life, especially like with thick makeup, it doesn't look as good in real life. Um, whereas minimal makeup looks worse on camera. So what we're seeing is, is women wanting a face that literally looks worse in real life because they might have their photo taken or it will look better in a selfie. Um, and there's so many things like that. There's also, do you know, buckle fat removal? Yes, uh, Anya Taylor-Joy had that, didn't she? Yeah, loads of, all, so many celebrities. And that looks great on camera, but kind of gaunt and skeletal in real life. Um, and the same with things like, even lip fillers tend to look better on camera. All of the like popular cosmetic surgeries now are things that look good for Instagram, which just shows that, you know, that's what our priority is. It's looking good there in in the online world rather than the real world. Yeah, and, and obviously the companies have the perverse incentive to keep expanding their customer base. And you yeah. can either do that by fostering deeper insecurities in women, which I'm sure goes some way into artificially creating these influencers, these heavily made up people and yeah. sponsoring them and, and having a, an almost infinite supply of people that they can look up to that then get brand deals. Or, and, and back, to the, back to the trans thing, there's a reason that Dylan Mulvaney was sponsored, for example, mm. of where they want to expand their customer base into men that want to look like women, and therefore you've got the unisex standard of applying makeup so everyone has an yeah, Instagram Yeah, and there's also a rise in men getting cosmetic surgery now. Really? Yeah. So... Uh, Cosmetic surgeries and things like um, Botox and these kind of injectables for anti-aging. So I think it's it is hitting both demographics, the kind of um, beauty standard and also the standard on men now to be the perfect kind of ripped, uh, you know, have that, um, you know, perfect uh, masculine torso. You know, men are now getting content based on that, on their algorithms, and they're all trying to compete to be the kind of, fitness uh, influencer. So I think it, it's hitting both, but obviously for women, you know, that market is just so much more saturated. There's so many insecurities they can create and just keep fueling. So it, it, it's taking a bigger hit on women, but you know, I think there's a rise in men um, with eating disorders as well, mm. which could be linked to all of this kind of the fitness ideals that they're getting served. Yeah, obviously it's a lot more embodied with women at a vulnerable time of puberty where they're being involuntarily sexualized by their peers and they yeah. perhaps feel uncomfortable with that and the peaking levels of neuroticism which are more typical in in women just for, for vulnerability's sake but the interesting thing we were when you're talking about the need to reshape 
men's need to reshape themselves into a hypermasculine ideal. Yeah. Something we were talking about just before camera started rolling was the Dino. Yeah. And and as an Essex girl, not the not the typical <laughs> Essex girl, because you quote Nietzsche, so I found That's that true. to be quite the amusing ability. <laughs> but uh, the Dino is ultimately defunct in his musculature. You know, he's yeah. he's he's bulging out of his River Island clothes, but. <laughs> He is C.S. Lewis's trousers ape. If you just anchored him behind a desk doing yeah. the exact same consultancy job as his girlfriend is, his muscles aren't being put to any use. Yeah. And so you've got these hyper-real skin suits that are ultimately serve no purpose. It's the, it's the same with the Botox and the lip fillers yeah. and, the, and the Brazilian butt lifts that you've written about before. All of these fertility markers of, of youth and vibrance and beauty but mm. aren't being put to use because most people aren't having families now. Yeah, yeah. And, and also you know, this uh, feminist narrative now that you're doing it all for yourself. You're not doing it for men. But all of them seem to exaggerate these fertility markers like the Brazilian butt lift and mm. the boob jobs and everything. Um, and, and even lip fillers, the makeup trends, you know, they are all signals of fertility and sexuality. Um, but we're in such kind of denial about that that we now it's become self-expression and empowerment or whatever they spin it as. Yeah, commodity is the prerequisite to your self-expression. This is mm. something that, that so Nina Power was just in, obviously. We said, yeah. So brief hellos. This is something she wrote about in her more left-wing book in 2009, mm -hmm. One Dimensional Woman, of which she called it Feminism Trademark. And yeah. she said that if you, if you commodify the constituent elements of a woman's life, like your appearance, and say, actually, it's disembodied from trying to appear attractive to men, yes. you just say makeup is just just for the girls, then you make it so that that brand of feminism, which branded itself once as liberation, mm -hmm. is now as revolutionary as a Diamante phone case, you know. Yeah. And and I I, I quite and, and you did a, a piece fairly recently on um, how freedom feminism and, and commercial feminism yeah. has missold women a bill of goods. What what prompted that? Yeah, well I've just noticed that so much, you know companies getting away with things that feminists would traditionally rally against, but wrapping it up in feminist language and getting away with it. So, and women kind of buying into that and, and really believing it. Like um, we were just talking about Madonna and her plastic surgery, but she called that fighting the patriarchy. She thinks it's, she thinks it's subversive to do that to her face. Right. Um, so the kind of twisting of things to turn it into activism, turn it into women's empowerment. And I've noticed that so much, like I've spoken before about um, these editing apps like Facetune, position themselves as feminists, they position themselves as kind of self-expression and empowerment. You know, they tweeting out on like International Women's Day that you should be editing your selfies. Um, and it's like worked. So many young girls seem to think that there's nothing harmful about that. It's kind of their self-expression. Um, like there's this guy, I don't know, do you know James Charles? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Man of dubious reputation, yes. I'll, I'll put it that way. He has uh, a series where he gets young, mostly young girls to send in selfies, which he will then edit. So he'll kind of restructure their face, change their nose, everything. And he's calling it, um, you know, a way to love yourself. You know, this isn't fixing insecurities. This is empowerment. All of the comments are like, you're a great role model. This is educational. And so it's almost like the brainwashing of it, you know, when we think about what we're actually doing and then think that that's a feminist move or that's good for our well-being in some way. And I think so many companies kind of take our insecurities and then wrap them up and then sell them back to us and call it feminism. Doesn't James Charles have a makeup brand as well? Yeah, yeah. So he's deliberately inducing insecurities in a vulnerable oh, audience to yeah, sell. Yeah, I mean, he's the king of Instagram face. Right. Okay. Um, so, because I remember, I remember you did a piece a little while ago talking about how women would take edited photos of themselves yes. into the beauty clinics and try and approximate that. Yeah. That augmented. Snapchat aesthetic. dysmorphia. That's it. Yeah. 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 It's like a. They're so accustomed to the, avatar version of their face that they have, all, yeah, like a dysphoria when they look in the mirror. It's not what they envision in their head because they're so used to every time they switch on a camera having a filter. Um, so then they're going to their plastic surgeons and saying, can you turn me into the Snapchat version of myself uh, rather than some celebrity? It's like they have their own ideal of what they want to look like. Because, um, you know, some of these girls, they're using these filters from like age nine every day. And every day getting used to that avatar version of themselves and you know hating the version in the mirror more and more and 
I don't think people realise how often girls are looking at themselves in that distorted way. Like Snapchat dysmorphia makes perfect sense to me. And I would think that so many people would would have that condition and not put a name to it, but just like this intense um, disconnect from what you see in the mirror and what your phone is showing you that you could be. Yeah, this is vindicating my position more and more that when uh, I eventually have kids, I am not letting them anywhere near a smartphone in their formative years. So so that's, that's social media well and truly indicted. Yeah. That's the makeup brands well and truly indicted. Uh, so what about the pharmaceutical companies? Because mm. recently, uh, if I'm correct in thinking, Rishi Sunak made it, or at least the government did, even easier to get contraceptive birth control over the counter at your local pharmacist without having to have a check beforehand. Yes. Is that one of the compounding issues? Yeah, I mean, there's a a brand in the UK called Hannah, which is a new contraceptive brand, which is, uh, you don't need to see a doctor, you don't need to have a prescription. Um, it's very kind of like American style, you know, their website is just kind of have a consultation with us. And you should see some of their adverts, it's like marketing it solely as like a lifestyle drug. So there's like a mother who's pushing a, her child in a buggy and she's losing control and she's so stressed out and her life just looks like chaos. And then some woman walks past her who's just like a girl boss who's sleeping with all these men and she's really happy. And, you know, none of the kind of practical information about the pill or mm. the dangers or the risks or that this is a serious medication. It's like, use this to improve your lifestyle. Um, and it's the same with other drugs, you know, like the rise in antidepressant and anti-anxiety medication, you know, women are driving that rise. Um, and I think that's because pharmaceutical companies know that they can take all of these vulnerabilities and emotions that are normal for women to experience and then commodify them, turn them into something medicalized, and then convince women that we need a pill to solve it. Mm. Um, and you can see that, you know, you know that company hers in America, yes. like they're just, it's almost like a parody. It's like any kind of normal emotion a woman would feel, social anxiety or kind of feeling nervous before a big date, there's a pill for it on their website. That's the mad thing actually, the difference between hims and hers yeah. uh, is astounding. It's, it's the same difference that Mary Harrington and Nova Golf Vale have pointed out, that yeah. the, the sexual revolution has disproportionately demanded women re-engineer their hormonal endocrine yeah. and uh, systems to be on parity with men because the, the hims um, medication is for misfunction. So it's like if you're losing yeah. your hair or if... It's practical Yeah, stuff. exactly. Whereas the women's pills are to almost correct a natural function, yeah. which is your fertility system working as intended. And if you feel sad, just sedate it like you're taking sober yeah. in Brave New World. Well, and it's also like, you know, the kind of old school battles women face where they were told they had hysteria mm. and that they had a nervous condition uh, when they had genuine struggles in their lives. It's, it's kind of reminds me of that. And I mean, some of the, even on the HERS website, they described the, um, I think it's the cardiovascular medication, Propanolol. They say that it makes you a badass, stuff like that. Like, it, it's not treated as a medication. It's treated as a way to improve your lifestyle, mm. um, which is just not on the HIMSS website at all. This is, it's funny because I, I don't know if you shared this, actually, but there was yeah. a Barbie meme yeah. <laughs> about yeah the, 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 the difference in discourse between the Kens going, oh, it's literally me and, you know, take mm. charge of your life. Whereas this Barbie takes Prozac and this Barbie oh takes Dizepam and, and yeah, things like that. The glamorization of it. Like, yeah. it is insane how these psychiatric drugs have become part of, well, men as well, but young women's identity online. Like, if you look through kind of, hashtag SSRIs on TikTok. Mm. It is so ingrained in their identity. And even when I wrote a piece on SSRIs, you tried to be so nuanced about it and careful. The comments are so visceral because women have, a lot of these young women have fully been convinced they have a chemical imbalance um, and view it as a threat if you question any, any part of that narrative. Mm. It's kind of scary. Yeah, it's terrifying. There was a New York Times piece fairly recently that said that Upwards of 50% of women over 45 in the US have have struggled to get off or are still on and cannot get off SSRIs. So the mass medication of women from age 14 with birth control, from menopause with psychological medication is just making them miserable. And they're trapped in this cycle of dependency, which which only enriches companies that hate them. Have you heard of um, PSSD? No, what's that? So that's 
post-SSRI sexual dysfunction. Right. Which I've only recently learned about, which is complete sexual dysfunction after SSRIs. And that can be after taking one pill or two pills. You know, there's a, all of these young people coming out saying, uh, even after stopping them a decade later, they still have symptoms. And I'd heard about it, but I just thought, oh, it's kind of like low libido. But it's like complete genital numbness, complete uh, lack of positive emotion. And it's, according to a lot of these people, it's permanent. They can't, there's no, it's untreatable. And doctors aren't warning patients of the possibility of it, um, despite it's been in the records in the US and the UK since 1991. That's um, harrowing. There was a piece in The Sun recently that, that looked into a study where boys that had been prescribed Ritalin were having long-term erectile dysfunction. Really? Yeah, and so we're literally sedating ourselves into sterility. Well, that's scary because there's companies on TikTok who are literally promoting Ritalin. Like there's a, a company in America called Cerebral, have you heard of them? No. So they do, they pay TikTok influencers to say things like, oh, have you ever felt stressed or easily distracted? Then you might need uh, Ritalin. And Cerebral is actually, I'm pretty sure, facing a lawsuit for over-prescribing stimulant drugs. That doesn't surprise me, because when I was in the States last month, mm. because location services, your adverts change. Yeah. As soon as I went onto Google Podcasts, intercut with my podcast, normally it's like the AA or yeah. random uh, Met Police recruitment ads. As soon as those were in America, all pharmaceuticals. Mm. And, and the list of side effects declarations were at twice the speed, but at twice the length of them saying, yeah. talk to your doctor in about getting this. Like tiny yeah, and it's, it was, it's being read out at a million miles a minute, but they're having to put all that in to hope yeah. that they can predictive programming you into thinking this is the prerequisite for you feeling better. And, and it's, a lot of people have said to me, oh, this is just happening in America, but um, I'm, I'm pretty sure there's, um, if you have anxiety or depression, you have to fill out questionnaires at the doctors yep. here. And um, I read a book sedated by James Davis, and he mentions how these, um, these forms they're filling out are literally written and influenced by pharmaceutical companies, and they're following the DSM, which was influenced by pharmaceutical companies. Mm -hmm. So... You know, we might not have the adverts on TV, but, you know, they've still got a huge influence in the UK. It's happening here as well. Yeah, it's very coercive. I mean, most of the medical regulatory boards are funded by the pharmaceutical companies. Mm -hmm. And so I, I can speak on a bit of personal experience, actually. I don't really think I've spoken about this before. But when I was when I was 16, I, I struggled pretty badly with depression. Um, yeah. And I wasn't eating very much. So I was, you know, one of the guys that fell into the former category. Mm -hmm. And because of the strapping nature on mental health services at the time, which has only gotten worse since, since lockdown and, and yeah. the proliferation of social media, the pressure to take the easy way out rather than yeah, go, and, yeah, go and do any kind of talk therapy, which in and of itself was in hospital ages away and in a group setting because they were strapped for, strapped for counsellors and things like that. Yeah. They just thought, okay, well, we'll take a pill and, and see me in the morning. And then you find out that, and this is a recent inquest, I don't know if you saw this, for England and Wales coroner's reports, mm -hmm. of where a vast amount of suicides that are medical overdoses yeah. use SSRIs as the overdose drug. Oh my gosh. So they're, they're selling you the instrument that is going to make you more likely to OD. Well, I'm pretty sure as well SSRIs are used to lower the libido of sex offenders. I've, I've, I'm pretty sure that's the case. And uh, wow. a young girl who had PSSD was telling me about this, like they know that it causes, it can cause low libido to the point of sexual dysfunction. Um, and yet you can, you go on TikTok and girls are talking about it like it's some, um, you know, like they're putting them in like sweets dispensers and making t-shirts with like Prozac on and phone cases. And you just think how, like all of this, I often think all of this mental health awareness campaigns, how much of it has actually been a marketing strategy? Mm. Like how much of it is, you know, companies trying to expand their customer base by telling us, by destigmatizing all of these different illnesses and, and making us think that it's all about um, tolerance and mental health awareness. But really, if you look at these girls, someone, something has convinced them so deeply that they have a chemical imbalance or they, they need, they're depending on drugs. And obviously there are girls that are severely mentally ill who need intervention, but you look at some of the side effects and you just think, you know, 
how worth it is it? How much do you have to be struggling to be put on these kind of medications? Um, and then you look at the numbers of girls on them, it cannot be that many who are who are that severely mentally ill and it's worth all of the risk. Yeah, it turns this condition into a now axiom of existence that you need continual profitable treatment yes, for yeah. in order to get along. And the companies, to keep the bottom line, mm-hmm. they don't want to ever solve it. It's the same with yeah. same with dating apps. They never want you to get off the dating app oh, yeah. and have a healthy relationship. Of course not. They want you to stay on the validation carousel. It's their business model. Yeah. Yeah, and I think so many business models depend on girls and and men being lonely, feeling like they're sick, feeling insecure, feeling like they're unlovable, like all of these negative uh, traits and feelings about yourself just benefit the business model. Mm. That is just how it works. Um, and yeah, it's from dating apps to pharmaceutical companies, like they just have an incentive for us to keep in this cycle of needing constant validation or intervention in some way. Um, but I, I think unfortunately, you know, for girls, their whole lives, everything they worry about from their looks to their feelings, to their friends, their family, all of it has been commodified in some way and uh, rinsed for profit somehow. So do you think those various pressures that women are experiencing in adolescence and uh, as you wrote about Fran Heard recently, their prolonged adolescence yeah. through, through their 30s, the sort of Peter Pan syndrome of only mm. thinking about the self, do you think those are the catalysts as to why our generation are struggling to commit, struggling to settle down? Yeah, I think that, um, again, companies benefit off of us being like these perpetual teenagers who, you, you kind of think how you think when you're a teenager, you want material comfort and you want convenience and instant gratification and then you kind of mature out of that, hopefully. Um, but I think now, companies benefit when you want to buy more things and consume more things and you put less emphasis on things outside of the market like family and you know all the things Mary Harrington talks about as well you know things that are beyond that narrow market driven vision of success and happiness the ring fence sphere of sentiment yeah yeah and I think you know so many people get caught up in that and think that is where happiness lies. And they get trapped in this prolonged adolescence where they're constantly chasing those kind of instant gratification and personal desires and whatever it is. Um, and I think we need to, especially for young girls and young boys, show them that you know the reason that's all being pushed on you is happiness and empowerment and fulfillment is because there's profit in it. Um, you know, the, there's a lot of money to be made off people who think they're endless teenagers and who are trying to find happiness in constant material goods and um, the pursuit of pleasure and desires. Um, but I think people don't realise that there's that incentive there. Um, and they just, they think that's what's going to make them happy. But we, we know from, you know, you look now at record rates of mental illness and disillusionment and nihilism it's not what's making people happy. Mm, no. So from what you're saying here, it's just sort of clicking, right? Mm. There's there's a causal chain here, much like the professional managerial class that run us. So mm. you go to an institution for education, you go to the institution of the university, then you go on your graduate scheme, then you go in the government, and then yeah. you expand the government to keep recruiting more managers. I can see that dependency is fostered in adolescent girls by selling their own insecurities back to them. They get Mm -hmm. dependent on makeup, on drugs, on social media validation. And then when that dependency is elongated through their fertile and family years, Mm -hmm. it might be difficult to centre your source of validation, if you're quite an insecure person, in just one man who himself might not be nearly as insecure and might not feel purposeful if he's just a a, a trousered monkey working at a desk job. Mm -hmm. And so they constantly have one foot out the door involuntarily, um, always seeking validation on social media rather than connecting with one person. Yeah. And I think, you know, the longer you do that, it's hard to rewire your mind to, to, you know, all of the things that, say, a relationship takes to sacrifice and compromise and discomfort and, you know, kind of, you know, sacrificing your own personal desires and fulfillment and self-expression. It's kind of hard. You, You think about children who've grown up in a world of just instant gratification, technological convenience, and constantly pushing on them more and more consumerism, um, to then rewire your mind to commit to someone through thick and thin, and to 
surrender your ego and you know stop caring about the relentless your own relentless self-promotion and making yourself marketable online all of that I think that's a big shift and I think you know in a way young people are victims of that because they've grown up with it and then they're missing out on things that are meaningful because of it and then you have older generations making fun of them for not pursuing what's meaningful but you know it's all they've ever known yeah the boomer aphorism that like I, I love my parents they're, they're really wonderful people and they're, yeah. they're, they've both my parents and my grandparents have very strong marriages that I'd, I'd hope to emulate. Mm. But whenever a relationship has fallen through, I've been I've been a bit like, oh, I'm not really seeing anyone at the moment. Yeah. My dad's always said the repeated meaningless phrase of, you need to kiss a few frogs before you find a princess. You know. Yeah. And it's like, no, actually, you don't need that meaningless carousel yeah. of, of going through people. It, it might actually estrange you from depth. Mm. And and that's the same approach for social media as, as it is with dating apps, I think, is if you CVify yourself, if you, yeah. if you present yourself as some kind of commodity on the human meat market, yeah. how do you actually, when you get a match, invest in... In, in someone beyond just the transaction. They, they discourage you from, from taking things offline, from fostering that relationship. And, you know, viewing other people as well like a commodity, you know, swiping through, you know, filtering out which type of products you want to see, which type of women you want to see, and the ability to just ghost and block people. I think, you know, we're, the way we find love is treating people like objects in a marketplace, and then we're expected to commit to someone and handle that right yeah. and you know I think it's kind of the system set up against young people pursuing meaningful commitment because we're just not trained to do it and dating apps in particular I think like, like you said there's all this kind of um, age-old advice that you need to have experience and try out different people but what if that just adds to your mindset of you know going through disposing people treating people like they're replaceable and upgradable and then when you do find someone meaningful you don't know how to commit to them properly mm. um, you're, not in, you're not in a place of habit where you've practiced the virtues that make you a good partner either. yeah and and you know you're in a culture that tells you to constantly put your own ego and your own desires first how do you then surrender that and give yourself to someone else I think that's that's hard for young people who've grown up with the constant advice put yourself first and you know your individual self-actualization is paramount and then you know a relationship requires surrendering some of that mm. and 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 just the structure of the dating app itself is very contractual yeah. so you you're both going into a negotiation under the auspices of oh we're here vaguely for a relationship usually people are just using it to hook up as well and so when it comes time to speak to someone, whether or not you're initiating the conversation or whether or not you've had a conversation, but you might be a bit apprehensive about taking it offline and something yeah. else comes up, you have no consideration for the other person. So you can just no. ghost or block yeah. or drop them. And then you're trying to rationalize it in your mind as, oh, well, I'll never see them again. But it's not about that. It's what do you owe to that person yeah. by striking something up under these pretenses? And learning, uh, you know, it's important to learn how to reject someone and, and deliver yeah. bad news and to... Take responsibility, but you don't. Know, you don't need to do that now. You can just never speak to them again. You can block them. You can ghost them. Um, and so we're not learning to have those difficult, uncomfortable conversations. And then when you get into a relationship, which comes with a lot of difficult, uncomfortable, you can't just block your partner. Yeah. <laughs> Even in a marriage, like you have to to face it. Um, and I think, you know, technology is set up in a way that we can avoid any discomfort. And then you try and pursue something meaningful that's full of discomfort and it feels overwhelming and instead you would rather chase kind of short shallow relationships where you can just you know ditch someone if, if you run into trouble yeah don't block your partner could have actually been your alternate title for your, yeah, for your piece on marriage true. because i think i think people are treating it like that though yeah. it's, it's, it's a self-expressive marriage or the, yeah. the big romance idea that, that mary's written about yeah. of where okay my partner is the agent which brings my best self into being and yeah. the moment they stop doing that then I can just sever those bonds no strings attached no emotional consideration yeah. involved and, and and that's why I think as well I, I read a piece recently on the sex procession in the Atlantic and she pointed out that marriage rates are down but mm -hmm. cohabitation rates are up now that's part of economic necessity because I mean we both live with family now it's yeah, bloody it's impossible for us <laughs> yeah, to get on housing like that but now we're treating each other like the constituent parts of a household. But at, at any time, as soon as we get a better offer, be it that accommodation or a partner, we're just like, right, bye. That's, yeah. that's it. Severing it like a contract. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, family breakdown, 
you know, divorce rates are actually down, but the rates of couples living together breaking up is up. Yes. So, uh, you know, then people think that family breakdown is getting better, but it's still a breakdown. It's still if you live with two parents and it splits up, it's, it's still um, the same thing. And I think people tend to think now that uh, you can almost live with someone and it's still, you're still one foot out the door. You're still um, just kind of waiting around for a better option. Um, and so even if you get that little marker of commitment, I don't think it really means much in the modern world now. No, I, I suppose learned the hard way before. Uh, what happens is it, it oftentimes it becomes the new standard from which people then expect more. Yes. And and so rather than being a household that you're working together with subsistence and you have that that codified commitment as an axiom you never question. You always yeah. think, right, when we hit a bump in the road, we are staying together. That's yeah. not even questioned. So where do we build from there? Yeah. Suddenly people start assessing their exit strategy and which assets they're going yeah. to lose and and how quickly can they negotiate their way out of this contract? And mm -hmm. especially if they have just ghosted people before, mm -hmm. they they don't know how to have that difficult conversation. Yeah. So Yeah. And and there's fear around it there's fear there's also fear around conflict and arguments i think you know i think a lot of young people grew up in households with divorced parents um and they maybe didn't see their parents argue but still love each other mm. and make up again um you know i, I like c.s lewis talks about you know love is loving someone when you don't like them hmm. it, you know it, it's not the feeling of constantly thinking i like this person so much it's it's Beyond that, it's strengthened through habit and will. Um, and I think a lot of young people haven't seen that. They haven't seen their parents break up and reconcile and everything's fine. So when they they have conflict with their partner, it's like a huge red flag and it's time to sever it. Um, rather than seeing that, you know, that is just part of life and it actually makes the bond stronger, probably. I'm, I'm really glad you invoked C.S. Lewis because I, <laughs> I, love, I love the book Four Loves. Yeah. Stelios and I covered it before. And, I, and it was one of those catalysts that made me reframe my own paradigm as mm -hmm. to what value am I aspiring to versus what conditions do I need to, to meet my happiness. Yeah. And I think most people are not in proximity to a transcendent value. Most people aren't thinking, um, as he said, that you can never love your partner too much as long as you are proximate to the first and highest love. And yeah. it was so God. And I think most people don't have humility and proximity to that value. They themselves are trying to aspire to be their own highest value, resolve around themselves yeah. as their own true son. And so when you induce insecurity in someone, mm -hmm. you decimate their entire worldview and yeah. you make them very dependent. And so they, they can't actually love someone if they don't have a, a stable sense yeah. of self and they don't know what to give to someone else. Yeah, and that's the danger of thinking, you know, a relationship is, is for you. It's for your own self-image mm. and expression. And your partner is just like an accessory to that because there will be times when you feel worse through being with that partner or you feel they're getting in the way of your personal desires because life happens, you know, your partner might get ill, you might have a rough patch. But if you go into it thinking, you know, this person is there to support me becoming my best self, you know, I, I don't see how a meaningful relationship comes out of that. Yeah, well, and this is this is one of the things I got a little bit annoyed. Have you seen Matt Walsh talking to Joe Rogan on his on his what, show? On what about JRE? So 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 he had a long debate with Rogan during his appearance yeah. on marriage, and Joe Rogan was pressing him on why same sex marriage. Oh, about isn't... gay marriage. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and Rogan was coming from the contractual. Well, these two people love each other and they want to write it down. Yeah. And Matt, as a Catholic, I was disappointed he didn't say, well, marriage isn't about the two people; it's for the children. That's yeah. why you stay together. This is what Danny Kruger got pilloried for yeah. recently and and so that leads me on i suppose onto your your unheard piece mm -hmm. which is okay is it is it climate change as all of the anti-woke uh, networks like to say that everyone's fallen under the spell under and that's why they don't want kids yeah or is it something else as to why our generation are having kids a lot later uh yeah i don't believe the climate change i i, I don't believe that young people are that scared of climate change mm. um just from my personal experience, I, I don't think I know anyone my age who is genuinely terrified of climate change to that level. Um, you know, I think it's much more, there's obviously the practical things like the housing crisis, you know, we can go into that, why, why people wouldn't have children, but they don't even stand up because people had children in far worse financial situations and, you know, facing far worse instability, world wars and, you know, threat of nuclear war. 
So those explanations don't really work either. And I think a lot of it is just this shift toward more individualistic values and what young people are kind of taught to aspire to. Um, like Jean Twenge, the psychologist, she was looking at um, the values of young people between 1976 and 2006, I think. And she said that it's shifted from kind of uh, internal values and community to external, like fame, image, success. And, and where do children fit into that? You know, children are a burden on all of those things and will probably get in the way of it. So if those are your values, then, you know, children, if you go onto kind of like child free TikTok, so it's like a billion views, the way they talk about children is like it's irrational. It just doesn't make any sense why you would have children and it's restrictive. And that kind of makes sense if you think that their worldview is constantly chasing, you know, individual autonomy and ambition and fame, image, success, then children make no sense. Um, so I think it's it's a value shift over time caused by a lot of different things and not helped by the practical housing crisis. But I think ultimately it's just viewing children in a different way. Yeah, I, well, I, I don't know if you watched the documentary Birth Gap by Stephen yes, Shaw. Yes. Right, yeah, so when I, when I spoke to him, he came up with this alarming stat that of the women who have reached uh, the age of childlessness, mm -hmm. only 10% of them consciously didn't want it. 10% uh, yeah. of them had fertility issues. 80% wanted it and never found the time. Yeah. And so there are all these catalytic material pressures like housing, like dating apps, discouraging a culture of commitment, like uh, education, particularly eating away the years of peak fertility for young women to the point of where Cambridge University, which also canceled his talk, we're giving fertility classes to women, reminding them you might meet someone, like Louise Perry yeah. did, you might meet someone and you might want to get a head start on this. Yeah. And so I do think there is a, a culture of discouragement, but also a, a culture of just lying to people about how viable these things are and when you need to put your life yeah. together. Yeah, because isn't it, uh, I think Stephen Shaw says that, that, you know, the biggest problem is delay. Yes. You know, it's just, and if you go online, if you look at kind of online feminist uh, Instagram pages or just like the mainstream places where you would be reading feminist mantras and thought it's all about delay it's, it's all about kind of um finding yourself and experimenting and there's obviously some value in that i don't i don't think young women should just marry someone because they're young and have children because you know that's how we end up with family breakdown i do think it's an important decision but i think if you're a young woman and you meet someone and the culture is discouraging you from that commitment, then that is a tragedy. Mm. Um, and I think, obviously, women pay the higher biological cost for that yeah, than and, men. And, and this is this is what Shaw's calculated. He said that there's going to be eight, 800 million people by 2050 that have succumbed to unplanned childlessness. Oh, and so Yeah, and, and so just, just by virtue of the economics, of course, because everything's governed by GDP line go up these days, mm. you know, that's, that's unsustainable. But on a personal meaning crisis, I mean... Speaking perhaps anecdotally, my grandparents, they grew up in the post-war years mm -hmm. and they had to live with my granddad's mum right when they got married because they couldn't afford a place. Yeah. But they got married at 18 you know, and, and they stayed together and they had two kids by my age, you know, mm -hmm. 24 going on 25. Feel ancient after lockdown, but there you go. And then my dad, when he was my age, he was on terrible wage like half of what i'm doing now my mum gave up work and she was earning more than him mm -hmm. to have me and you know he was my age he was a young dad but and he always he's always said to me oh i, I wish maybe i'd had a bit more experience because i would have i would have been a bit more present i would have uh, appreciated the small things but mm. i mean i think he's done a good enough job i hope <laughs> but so I, I sit there and I, I think sometimes you know it's it's sad that all of these cultural and economic forces are continually delay onsetting mm -hmm. our ability to care for meaningful dependence and find that meaning. And and for the, the for the last couple of days, I've had conversations with people like like Nina. Yeah. And a lot of men my age, I think, are thinking, when can you actually call yourself a man? Yeah. And it's difficult if you're not around proximity to danger, like a, a gun club or a, a scouts or a, yeah. a cadets. It's difficult if you don't have a mental figure in your life, which I'm very fortunate too, but lots lots of men don't. I mean, Matt Goodwin and, and Rakib Hassan and that have looked into this and they saw that the Children's Commission have found that 50% of kids in the UK are growing up across split households now. Yeah, by the time they're 14, it's something like 46% don't live with a mum and dad. Yeah, that's that's horrendous. Yeah. And if you don't have someone to care for, if you're not 
someone's person of last resort, whether mm. that's a, a girlfriend, and that's 27% of men 18 to 30 have never had one, yeah. or if that's children. I, how how do you find your place and belonging? And, and so that despondency is is fomenting because we don't have participation rituals. Yeah. So, so I suppose my question is, they've undermined women's mental health mm. to such an extent in a very different way and, and profited off of it, whereas men are superfluous. So when what is women's identity in this if they're not becoming mothers and if they're mainly becoming consumers like how how do how do women feel about themselves placing themselves into society yeah i think well like you said um everyone talks about how women are missing out if they're delaying these meaningful things but men as well you know you look around it so many men feel lost and that they're without purpose mm. and that modern life doesn't provide any kind of coming of age milestones or markers for how you're supposed to be a man. And so I think you're right, it's affecting men um, in the same way. But I also think with women, you know, we feel that where do we put our purpose? Where do we put our responsibility? Um, I, I just think in general, both genders need something higher than themselves in order to be them best, their best self, you know, to be the most um, compassionate they can be and uh, to be you know, you need that level of responsibility to kind of kick you into doing that. Yeah, people worthy of being parents in the yeah. first place. Yeah. yeah, and I think the culture has it backwards now because they kind of say you need to be the perfect man and woman and then have a baby when you're set up. But really, what if it's the children that make you into the perfect man or woman? Mm. Like, we, we don't know. And so you've got all of these young people kind of flailing through life, not knowing where to put meaning, not knowing where to seek value trying to become someone worthy of a family and children. But like you said, like our grandparents, they just did it. They just, they were, my grandparents were the same. They were living together in their parents' house. Um, but their central focus was having children. It wasn't about, you know, have I experienced enough? Have I found myself? It was like, this yeah. is how I find myself. In... I spent my gap year in Bali. And yeah, all, yeah, yeah, it was, you know, if I'm gonna find myself, it's through children. Um, and I think we've lost that now. Yeah, vocations, I think, provide people real callings to rise to the occasion and cultivate that, yeah. that virtue and that resilience. I mean, you've, you've written a hell of a lot about staving off resentment and, and the thing which prohibits you from, from behavioural policing, uh, particularly that's been exacerbated by social media. I mean, there, there was, I can't remember which outlet it was for, but you'd written an article that essentially said social media is the catalyst of what's making girls just bitchy. Yeah. Because yeah. they're finding value in henpecking each other yeah. um, and the worst possible traits are being exacerbated for social clout. Yeah. But if you have a family which grounds you and you're earning subsistence for them rather than just earning endless abundance as the prerequisite to you as an individual consumer, yeah. you'll dispense of those behaviours. Yeah. And you think about, um, or, you know, when you have a family, you're not going to be in this kind of now it's like a race for who's got the most stuff, who's got the most, it's all about image and promoting it online. And like like I was saying, um, girls kind of competing with their faces online, with their lifestyles. Whereas when you have a family, hopefully a lot of that focus goes from you into children and you kind of take yourself out of those superficial, that superficial competition. Um, Whereas now we're extending the time that you're in that superficial competition. So you've got young women uh, who are in their kind of mid-twenties still obsessing over their appearance like they're kind of school students because they're still, there's nothing higher to aspire to other than that kind of superficial, you know, competition for what stuff you have or how you look. Um, I don't think that makes anyone happy. Yeah. Um, but perpetually cultivating for markers of fertility that are ultimately fruitless. Yeah, 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 which is like the ultimate sad metaphor of it is that you're everything that could give us meaning. We're almost aiming at, you know, through trying to look more fertile and trying to attract someone, but then we're being discouraged and saying, "Don't actually have children," because mm. that will get in the way. So, um, yeah, the, it's just the the cultural narrative is completely shifted from when our parents were young our grandparents probably um to something that just says you know discourages all meaningful commitment and even calls it empowering yeah so i suppose my question is if we're both sitting here very discontented about the social order mm -hmm. well, i mean we're both paid to write and speak about this right yeah 
what's the likelihood of people our age mounting a counter-offensive? You know, I see, I see little things. I think there's, I think there's a growing kind of middle ground where people aren't kind of like a woke progressive, but they can see that men and women are different and that there are excesses of capitalism and commodification which are affecting their lives. I've seen a couple of kind of young women speaking up about hookup culture, for example, how transactional it is, how they feel failed by it, um, speaking up against editing apps and Instagram face. I'm seeing it slightly, but I do think, you know, I'm seeing it because they're my circles online. I don't know how much just the average young girl is thinking about these things. Um, I think the only way things would shift for, say, young women is if women in the culture start to talk about it. So, for example, influencers. If you had, like, a Love Island influencer, like Molly May, for example, she had a baby at 23, and she's kind of vlogging her days as a mother, which I think is a good thing um, for young people to see. But I think it would take people like that who are kind of in the modern world talking about these things. Because I think, you know, conservative kind of traditional religious figures can talk about it all they like, but it's not going to resonate with the average 14-year-old girl. Yeah, it's what Mary says is her culture is downstream of what the hot girls want. Yeah. Well, did yeah. you see Sydney Sweeney the other day? Oh, about chance? motherhood. Yes. Yeah. So I yeah. thought that was a quite encouraging turning point because you've got a, a woman there who is very attractive and... She cut her teeth in playing someone disserviced by the sexual revolution in Euphoria while also quite exploitatively getting a kit off in front of camera. Yeah. Comes from a fairly conservative household where she said before, when my scenes came on, my dad and that just walked out of the room because yeah. they were just like, I, I can't watch you do this. And is now saying, well, I've got a lot of fame and I've, I've directed my own films and that but what use is it without someone to share it with i thought i'd be a young mum by now yeah and so if that discontent enters public consciousness with women frankly who should quite easily be able to have their pick of men mm. that might go some way to changing women's minds yeah i think i think it's going to have to come from people who are not kind of like trad wives talking about it it's going to it's going to have to come from someone who is you know within the mainstream you know they're not really conservative and traditional but they can see that there's value in these things and um i'm starting to see that slightly but yeah i don't know if that's just my twitter feed <laughs> or whether it's actually you know resonating with young girls i don't know but hopefully that continues and you know people like influencers and celebrities start opening up about more meaningful things in life because if you think of all the all the influencers that are the most popular they're all so caught up in this superficial culture. They all have the same personalities. And so girls are just seeing uh, these women value all of the same things. And there's no one saying, I value motherhood or marriage mm. or, or something like that. And so I think that needs to be the shift that happens. So it's also, a, uh, as well as a cultural problem, I think it's also a tech problem, as, mm. as we've gone through with social media and the yeah. like, with the invention of the, the birth control pill, which Louise and, and Mary are trying to encourage young women to to walk away from. So I suppose my my question would be, are you optimistic about the trajectory of technological development? Because something I saw that made me smile recently, mm -hmm. and also grimace because of how dystopic it is, mm -hmm. is the amount of online simps falling for fake yeah. influencer accounts. Because mm -hmm. on the one hand, you're going to create a dependent kuma class that are going to live in the metaverse and never leave and all sorts of mechanical horrors will be put to use but then also a lot of women are not going to be led astray down the perverse incentive path of selling themselves on OnlyFans for the average income of nothing yeah but have irrevocable exposing pictures of themselves online that that mean that it's very difficult to have a relationship with a committed man so yeah I mean there's there's positives to it, but it, I think, you know, we talk so much about why women sexualizing themselves online. Why, why do women feel the need to uh, sell themselves on OnlyFans? But also, why are there so many young, well, young, but also old, but like insecure, detached men who are so starved for intimacy that they will even desire someone who's AI mm. or, or not real? Like, I think that's the real 
dystopian thing about it is why is there such a market for that mm. but also i agree i think there's there's positives in women not kind of getting caught in that um selling yourself worth and putting it into the hands of strange men online i just don't think that's you know i think for some women um some women are different and they they can do that and they they do feel um you know little negative impact on their mental health but i think for most women putting your self-worth in the hands of strangers online is just never gonna uh, end well well i think so i saw the josh and i did a breakdown of the psychological literature the impacts of porn and the kinds of people that go into the industry yeah. one of the most disturbing things i saw was a cdc kaiser study of adverse childhood experiences and if you have uh, adverse childhood experience score self-rated of one uh, of four or higher out of yeah. ten then the likelihood that you're going to be promiscuous, engage in drug use, not be able to have a, a stable long-term relationship is is much higher. So I, I, I look at this from both the consumer and producer side as the consumers are people who are accepting a surrogate for intimacy, often out of an insecurity of ever approaching a woman. 55% of men in the last year haven't spoken to one and asked one out on a date. And they are accepting something they never know whether or not it was made consensually by people that hold contempt for them for being a customer base for this, because the people that are participating in it basically hate you for watching it. Yeah. And the people that are doing it have had broken lives and you're watching their, their trauma play out on screen, but they're masking over it with yeah, acting. Yeah, that's so true, yeah. It's like, I feel as if if you don't have a love of both the mother and father in childhood, you will seek that validation from either women or men mm. throughout your life. Uh, and that seems to be what drives a lot of this is like needing that um, assurance, even if it's from strangers, uh, which is just so sad. But I think so many things that we talk about in society just go back to, did you have a mother and father that loved you? Um, you know, substance abuse, you know, sexualizing yourself online. I think it's girls from divorced parents more likely to get pregnant in their teenage years and just not find a committed relationship. So it just sets you up completely to have worst life outcomes in almost every metric. Mm. So are you encouraged by the recent spate of legislation that looks like it's setting age verification for these websites? Because yeah. in, and I, I thought this was a hilarious, but also dark mask off moment. Yeah. The various states in America that have set up age verification, MindGeek have just blocked access to their websites. They've made the risk calculation that it's actually gonna be more expensive to keep the data on file and vet it yeah. than keep the customer base that aren't children mm. looking at their website traffic to then sell to advertisers. So do you reckon we're gonna get something similar here and do you reckon that's a viable solution? I don't know. I, how are they verifying ages? Is it through uploading ID? Yes. Okay, because sometimes it's literally just, are you this age and you just put yes or no? Yes. Which is just, yeah. will achieve nothing. Um, didn't didn't OnlyFans just require you to put in like someone else's credit card details in order to open an account? Oh really? Because I, mm. I saw a BBC documentary on on deepfakes yeah. and how women were being involuntarily conscripted into someone else's fantasy. Yeah, that is. And they were being uploaded on OnlyFans, and then the BBC did a, did a, an investigation adjacent to that with a US criminal investigator, and they found that OnlyFans knew of accounts set up by minors and posting materials from minors. This had been alerted to them, but they hadn't taken them down. And they had absolutely no answer for it. But it's because their age verification process just wasn't yeah. in fit enough Well, it's like, I, I'm pretty sure on TikTok, you literally just, they literally just ask you, when's your date of birth? Right. <laughs> it's like, so I, it depends on how kind of stringent the restrictions are. But, mm. you know, also young people are very tech savvy. That I'm sure young people will find ways to get around any kind of age restrictions. Mm. So that, that doesn't comfort me uh, too much. I don't think that's going to be the answer. The fix all. Yeah. yeah. I, I think, I think... The abolition of the birth control pill, at least uh, consciously, will go some way to do that because obviously, yeah. the, as as Louise pointed out with with Marilyn Monroe and and Hugh Hefner, the porn industry wouldn't exist yeah. without birth control, and and even then there are still um, a, a alarming a number of pregnancies that happen and and uh, tragically there, terminated. There are a lot of, of young women, I think, turning against the birth control pill. Mm. I'm seeing a lot more, you know, even just among my friends, people talking about just through their own experiences, the kind of uh, mood swings and emotional problems and uh, and then finding out that, you know, it's linked to su uh, increased risk of suicide and depression. I think that's becoming a lot more mainstream. Um, but I don't know whether, you know, maybe people think, you know, having 
access having contraception and being able to have casual sex is worth that risk i don't know i'd hope not because obviously people again are finding that intimacy in a, in yeah. a surrogate avenue yeah yeah so what then would be your recommendations for young women if they're trying to achieve escape velocity from this culture? Mm. What what healthy habits have you found? And also, as, as you've written a hell of a lot as well, um, how do we cultivate that psychological resiliency that that I think a lot of people have become so, so risk averse and, and so allergic to suffering mm. that they're incapable of incorporating it into their personalities when, when they experience it, but also they're, they're doing everything to, to medicate and insulate themselves from ever experiencing it. I think it's just, uh, unfortunately, you know, we're not going to topple the porn industry. We're not going to tear down social media companies anytime soon. So I think it has to be about the individual and having kind of self-awareness about what you're being sold you know, if if a narrative persists in modern life, who is funding it? Why? What are the incentives for that narrative? Mm. Um, if you aren't benefiting, who is? Yeah, exactly. Who is it actually serving? And I think a lot of it is, is just becoming self-aware. Like, since I've been reading about all of these things, I find myself with every advert, with every kind of new trend in modern life, thinking, you know, what are they trying to sell me or, or what, how is this going to make me more atomized or unhappy in, in some way? Um, I think our generation being digital natives actually see through the framing yeah, a lot more. Yeah, that, that, is, that is true. And I think, I don't think you need to write off um, any kind of comfort and convenience in modern life. It's not that you need to disconnect from it, but, you know, having enough uh, self-awareness and confidence to resist some of this stuff. So, you know, I'd never say to girls, you know, you need to throw out your makeup or uh, never engage in any kind of consumerism or anything like that. You know, you, you can still enjoy the modern world, but it's about knowing yourself, not letting companies kind of uh, use your emotions against you and not living your life, you know, like refracted through the needs of corporations and what they want for you, you know, actually thinking about who you are. And I think a lot of that comes down to spending less time on social media, more time actually thinking about yourself and working on your kind of private inner self rather than your image online, hmm. um, which takes work and it's not as sexy and cool as what the kind of uh, narratives in modern life are telling you to do. But I think it will make you know young men and young women a lot happier. Hmm. And so, well, I'm glad you brought up young men then. To, to conclude, we've had a lot of discourse recently about women noticing a problem with young men. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad that they're receptive to it. Mm -hmm. But I think they, quite a few have admitted that not being a man, they can't really offer any solutions. What I will say is maybe the reason they can't offer solutions is because young women aren't able to set any strident standards because they themselves feel so disembodied and alienated yeah. and insecure. So given you're someone who has a, a much better grasp on things than mm. unfortunately lots of the women our age do because they've been missold a bill of goods. What do you recommend can do help out? What what what's up to us? Mm. I think again, it's the same thing. It's about um, men working on their inner self and being a better person for the women in their lives. Like I think there's there's so much advice now, which is how can we tackle this societal issue with women? How can we um, you know approach this huge problem we're facing and I think it just comes down to individuals you know how do you treat the women in your life do you listen to them do you view them as like an individual with their own problems and the same with women you know do you listen to what men uh, are telling you and how they respond to their emotions and how they respond to problems and I think we can um, fix so many of these like divide between men and women by actually just treating the people in our circle like individuals and listening to them because I think you know you go online and there's kind of alpha male influencers talking about women and stereotyping women and and not viewing them as individuals and there's feminists who are saying all oh, men are rapists and abusers and like you know um stereotyping them and I think it's just stepping back from that and thinking you know if you if you know a young girl in your life who's who's miserable looking at her individual life you know how much time is she spending online how does she view herself and her body and why does she think that and and it goes this, the other way you know talking to the men in your life you know are you lonely why are you lonely mm. 
And if everybody did that, then we would have so much better understanding of each other. Um, but, you know, it's, yeah, again, about private inner work in your own little circle rather than trying to solve a whole issue. I think, you know, we could just go round and round in circles about that. Yeah, we'd rebuild that complementary solidarity yeah. through a bit more compassion. And that's perhaps my frustration with the red pill sphere. I've, I've called red pill a bit of a sedative because mm, it yeah. actually prevents you. It's a, it's a cathartic emotional release valve to pay money to Andrew Tate or whatever podcast or Fresh and Fit to just insult these attractive women that are, yeah. that are somehow the icons of the sexual revolution, even though they've been missold the same bill of goods that, yeah. that these lonely young men have. It's not actually challenging the paradigm to do that or to just earn enough Bugattis that you dominate a woman into, into yeah. submission by being so impressive. Instead, actually, what would break the paradigm is the person that you invoked, which is, mm. is C.S. Lewis, conceiving of yourself in proximity to the highest possible love, the highest possible good, yeah. and aspiring upwards to that good with someone else. Yeah, and also seeing you know, like you talk about the whatever podcast, like seeing why women think those things. And, you know, I see a lot of uh, kind of right-wing commentators make fun of women for being on OnlyFans or for engaging in all of these things. But you have to look at their childhoods and how they grew up. You know, these these were little girls who were conditioned with this narrative and who yeah. grew up in the modern world. And I think it's, again, it's just a bit more compassion on both sides for, you know, we, we've been conditioned to think these things. Um, rather than you know modern women are like this or modern men are like this it's like let's all look at modern life together and realize where it all went wrong yeah i i, I think actually I've, I've said this before the the mockery of women who have made sexual mistakes actually doesn't help because mm. even if they're not going to change the women yeah. that are watching it and have salacious pictures out there or have slept around if you're revoking their ability to be forgiven forgive themselves and reincorporate themselves into healthy sexual norms mm. and they've got no incentive but to double down it's the same with yeah. the detransitioner yeah, like yeah. if you if you just mock all of trans beyond the autogynophiles beyond the the regime's puppets like dylan mulvaney yeah then that girl who has been breastbinding for ages and feels confused about herself and might be questioning some of the gender narrative will fall back into the tribe just yeah. because we're too mean and so what we do need to do is have some kind of amnesty yeah. So of a, a cultural acceptance that we've both been missold a bill of goods and and that we haven't had an alternative because lots of us, fortunately not me, but lots of people I've known didn't have those strong parental figures to transmit yeah. those values down the chain. And, and so yeah. we need to be a bit more understanding of each other and, and maybe fill that void. Yeah. And, and like we said, it comes down to childhood. You know, your mind is shaped by your parents and by your childhood and you go on in life. Uh, repeating the same patterns and chasing validation and instant gratification and then if someone comes along and says to you oh my god you've slept you've got this body count uh, that's because you're a bad person it's because you're um you know we're, we're looking down on you it's like that's not going to solve anything you know we have to look at why young women are drawn to these things um and again with men as well you know you can't sit and make fun of all the men that are wanting AI girlfriends you have to look at okay, what in their childhood what in their individual life has led to that warped um, uh, demand as they grow older mm. um, but yeah I think you know we're not hearing much of that in modern life it's it's you know we go on social media and social media rewards and reinforces these stereotypes and stokes competition between the genders and pulls us further apart until we talk about the other side like, you know, completely alien. We're like, we don't understand what women want. We don't understand what men want. I think it's just going back to, we're just all human and we're all trying and the modern world is really tough. Um, and yeah, like trying to help people see where they're being exploited and manipulated. Well, I am very thankful that you decided to take the time to come in to get today and elucidate how we're all trying because <laughs> yeah. I think this is really constructive so thank you thank you very much and thank you very much to everyone for watching until next time goodbye